Hello. Welcome to Joker Men Podcast, a podcast that's about one artist and one artist only, Bob Dylan. The man himself. The music uh, uh, master, the song master. Song master, yeah, as um, one of the... uh, Commenters on the... uh, Traveling Wilburys song. Wilburys, uh, yes. The Song Masters, <laughs> I believe yeah. they, they referred to them as. Yeah, they just said the Song Masters. Bob Dylan, the Song Master of Song Masters. King of <laughs> Kings. I'm Ian. I'm Evan. And we are Joker Men. Collectively, yes. Today's a special episode, actually, because it's really a first for us. Um, in that it, this is a... A retrospective episode where we are going to look back uh, at the at the carnage and wreckage that we've left in our wake uh, thus far, talking about Bob Dylan's middle career years, starting, of course, with uh, John Wesley Harding in 1967, all the way up till at. Uh, 1989 thus far. Yep. With Oh Mercy. Yeah, we've uh we've we've reached the end of this calendar year, which I think we can all agree has been a great year. Um you know, uh, Joker Men started, uh Rough and Rowdy Ways came out, nothing mm-hmm. else of note really happened. It's just been good news since the beginning. And now that we're at the end of this year, we're going to we're going to look back at uh at at this first half year or so of of the Jokerman journey um, by beginning with a 1970s retrospective. I suppose we will, we will also talk about the 67 and 69 records, but I mean, most of what we're going to discuss is the clean cut of 1970 to 1979. 79. Exactly. The first uh, complete decade of Bob's career that we got a chance to make our way through. It's it's possible we'll end up doubling back around and diving into the 60s at the end of this whole mess, but that's... Maybe. Maybe at the very end of our journey here. Because If you're all very good, and if everyone subscribes to our Patreon once we start it up. Yeah. Well, I guess we can begin just by sort of laying out uh, what we're, what we're going to be doing here today. Most of uh, what we're talking about, we're going to be compiling a sort of uh, Jokerman Best of the 70s playlist that is going to be up and live and available for you to listen to. Uh, at, you know, now that you're listening to this, we'll include a link to it in the podcast description, uh, or I will try to figure out a way to do that. Right. Um, I assume it shouldn't be too hard. No. Uh, but yeah, Evan and I have both sort of separately surveyed our experiences with Bob's 70s discography, and we've both on our own put together our, our personal best of playlists here. And so we're going to try to sort of mash those, combine them down into one uh, canonical Jokerman uh, uh, best of the 70s playlist that represents, represents the 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 Zen, or no, what am I thinking of? The yin and the yang of, of Jokerman. <laughs> yeah. The Zen. The Zen and the Zang. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and see what, see what we can discover at the end of all that. And then, uh, I think to conclude, right, we're going to 
sort of just take a look back at some of our, well, all of our three-star system, the patented three-star system ratings yeah. of the albums. Yeah, we'll touch on the, the couple 60s records that we talked about, as well as, obviously, all of the 70s albums. Uh, I know there's been a, a raging uh, a debate going on online on all of the various Jokerman social channels about Evan's shocking two-star review of Blood on the Track. So we're gonna we're gonna revisit that and and get to the bottom of it. And you know maybe and maybe others. we'll come out of this. Maybe it'll still be a two for him, but you know we will at least we'll, we'll let him make his case. You know, uh, while I don't want to r- say too much right now. Um, I will say that in respect to some of the three-star system rankings, uh, to quote the man himself, things have changed. It's true. Uh, <laughs> some things have changed. <laughs> That'd be like a, gra- sure. a great way to make that um, that song way less powerful. Is call it some things have changed. A couple things have changed. A few things here and there have changed. This and well, that, nothing major, but there have been some changes. <laughs> uh, you've got you've got the Shabbat telethon <laughs> on the brain. Chabad, my friend. Oh, is it Chabad? Oh, well, this is why I'm a guy. <laughs> Shabbat. Yeah, we we recently. Uh, I stumbled across this this thing which I did not know about. Um and it The video appears to be taken down now also. I tried to open it up on really? that website earlier. Yeah. And it's only it, it appears to only be available on, on Jokerman. On Jokerman. That's shocking. Yeah, it was not on YouTube, it was some sketchy other site. But right. uh what are we talking about is there was a nineteen eighty nine appearance of Bob Dylan on the Chabad Telethon, which is a uh long standing Jewish organizational uh, uh, telethon to raise money for Chabad, the uh, sort of conservative Jewish movement stalwart. Uh, And this particular performance was so (laughs) shocking for me to to unearth because um, it features Bob Dylan and also... Is that his son-in-law? The that's what the 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 rabbi says. Right. Yeah. It, it could be Peter Himmelman. Anyway, the the great Peter Himmelman. <laughs> but uh, I'm bearing the lead here. Joining Peter Himmelman and <laughs> and someone named Bob Dylan is Harry Dean Stanton, the legendary the actor and. Uh, Really, a, a terrific, a tremendous musician, I, I think, of, of uh, a singer of great soul, an actor of great soul, a being of pure light. Um, he is joining Bob. He's not Jewish, and he's there uh, <laughs> to sing a Mexican song, his specialty, and also yep. to play uh, some harmonica. The uh, cumulative effect of this video. Bob Dylan is playing on a, a little toy flute recorder. Recorder, him. Yeah. And um, seems they're to all be, wearing uh, yarmulkes. They're all wearing yarmulkes. 
Bob Dylan seems to be zonked out of his mind or very <laughs> sleep deprived or he's he's clearly not at all familiar with the lyrics of the song. No. Harry no. Harry Harry will sing a verse and you'll hear Bob just sort of like perk up for a second and then realize he doesn't know Dip what what down. word comes next it's and sort then he of, just he puts the recorder back in his mouth. Kind of like that video of Bob Dylan and uh, Van Morrison in Greece also in in 1989 I believe <laughs> um where <laughs> he's it's a very similar energy of him just like sort of half half-heartedly like uh mumbling along. Um he gets off a good uh harmonica accompaniment though to Van on um Foreign Window, I believe. Uh mm. anyway, this video is spectacular. Harry Dean Stanton is truly one of the um treasures of this of the silver screen and uh all around seems to be in my estimation, one of the best uh, people ever to live. And uh, it's a very special treat to see him um, for some reason uh, exploring uh, Judaism for a few minutes. His non-existent Jewish roots. They do uh, play Hava Nagila all together. And... uh, Bob's on the harmonica on Hava Nagila. That's right. If he's on the harmonica, uh, <laughs> to to be very generous. Um, anyway, spectacular video. Finding it added years to my life. I was so happy to watch this. Uh, it really does feel like a video that sort of like like we would have manifested into reality. Right through through the Black Lodge or something like it didn't exist, but some sort of concentrated psychic force willed it into existence. The White Lodge, and, you mean? This is a heavenly right. video. I guess yeah, this would be a White Lodge. Speaking of which, uh, Harry Dean Stanton wouldn't. was in Twin Peaks. Right. Well, that's why I was making making right. that reference. Yeah. Okay. Make, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Also, it, uh, compounding this uh, magical discovery, uh, which I I found this on Hanukkah. Which, I mean, yesterday was the first day of Hanukkah, and I, I was looking for some kind of Dylan uh, Judaica to post and stumbled across this perfect specimen, um, which happenstance made it the, uh, occurred on the exact year we had just covered of Dylan's career. Mm-hmm. But then I was just searching um, Harry Dean Stanton on Spotify, um, on a streaming service, rather, on a streaming service. And wondering, you know, what music of his was on there. And apart from just the soundtrack to the great documentary, Partly Fiction, which is about Harry Dean Stanton, uh, came out in 2012. The only other song that was released came out five days ago or something, a few days ago. And lo and behold, it is a cover from 1995 of Harry Dean Stanton performing I'll Be Your Baby Tonight by Bob Dylan. The great John Wesley Harding album closer. And it's a spectacular uh, recording. It's, it's so spirited. It's a great cover it's version. very good. And um, so I just wanted to start off by acknowledging the um, transfusion of positive vibes that I was given in a one-two shot in this Hanukkah miracle. Uh, There's really just great energy, great vibes in the air at the moment during this most holy of 
uh, seasons for the Jewish people. As we all know, Hanukkah, the most important of Jewish <laughs> it's, holidays. It's not the most important. It's not, <laughs> it's not the most important one. That's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Mm. But, um, you know, it's the one that most people know, probably. It's definitely the one that they have the most branded kind of merchandise available for. You, you're not going to go to Target and get a, a <laughs> get, Rosh Hashanah. Or a, um, a, Yom, a Yom Kippur. You know, on Yom Kippur, you wear a, a white shroud, as, like the one you will be buried in, in mm. a Jewish cemetery. That's not, they don't sell that at Target. No, they don't. But they do sell, you know, baby's first Hanukkah bibs or something. Right. Well, anyway, I just wanted to share that um, and, you know, acknowledge the festive season. But I think now we should just begin and uh, start talking about what's on our playlist, playlists. Yeah, we're going to have to uh, put this, uh, put this together and really kind of negotiate some, some tricky, tricky waters here and uh, disagreements. Um, I think we're going to shoot for like 15-ish songs. Maybe we'll do a few more if it, if it seems warranted. Um, there is some overlap, I think, between both of our playlists here. But uh, how should we do this? Should we just trade off one and one, going back and forth, and then talk about it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's just go ahead and do it. Without any further ado, the first song on my playlist <laughs> is All the Tired Horses. This does not appear on yours, does it? Yeah. It does. Does it? Absolutely. Okay, so that is also the first instance of playlist overlap. Playlist overlap. So that's a, right there, a perfect uh, chance for us to both talk about what is it about this song that made it, uh, that gave it a spot on both of our playlists. Well, that's a good question. We should note also, uh, just for for those of you who don't remember quite as well all of the tired all the tired horses right the uh side one track one album opener for the great self-portrait that's right uh features zero lyrics or zero vocals at least from the man himself yeah um but what does it have it's got a great lyric all, all the, the tired, tired horses, horses in the, the sun, sun. How am I supposed, How to, get am I supposed any to get any writing done? done? Um, well, first of all, it's unlike any other song by Bob Dylan under Bob Dylan's name. Yes. There's nothing else like this. I think that in large part is why it stands out to me on a superficial level. You know, I, I can't compare it really to anything else. But also, I think on its own, uh, two legs, four legs, four plus four horse legs, and two uh, human legs, sure. maybe, maybe more than four horse legs because it's, it's all the tired horses. There's probably there's several. Mm. Good point. A multiple of four <laughs> plus two. Any anyway, um. Jesus, where was I? There's, there's a, it's on its on its own merits. It's a really beautiful composition, and it has a meditative quality that is cinematic and um, minimalistic, 
maximalistic at the same time. It's gorgeous, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful song. It's a great album opener, also uh, setting the template for what is to follow on Self Portrait, which, as we all know, which as we're all aware, is is sort of the first kind of out of left field, really out of left field recording that Bob uh, put out in his career. John Wesley and Nashville Skyline were were pseudo left turns, uh, but but Self Portrait was was a big departure and and. Uh, obviously universally reviled by the fake news media upon its uh, initial release. Um, and even, and even today, today is still, some. is still not thought of with the same level of fondness as the earlier records or even the records that are immediately coming after it. New morning, for instance, which is often held up as Bob's, uh, you know, far superior 1970 release. I think a contention that both of us would vehemently disagree with. Um, yeah, absolutely disagree yeah. with that. But uh, we'll t- we'll speak more on that a little later, later on. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, um, uh, self portrait is really just sort of a, a fantastic and exciting grab bag of uh, of material all throughout Bob's um, range of interests, and uh, all the tired horses is a really just uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful kind of perfect set set the tone those cinematic strings that fade in there towards the end. Yeah. The gorgeous uh, female vocals um, harmonizing, yep. and uh, it, uh, it it yeah it really is sort of a in some ways a, a crown jewel of self portrait and by virtue of that I think uh, one of the crown jewels of Bob Dylan's nineteen seventies output absolutely so that that's that's how it ends up on our on both without of a doubt um well shall we. Jump yeah. along to the next song, yeah, yeah. So right off the bat, you know, I hate to uh, I hate to be so predictable, uh, but it's gonna have to be another side one track one from the great Blood on the Tracks, <laughs> Tangled Up in Blue. But with the caveat, this is not actually the version of the song that appears on the canonical record. This is, of course. For those of you who listened to the extensive Blood on the Tracks episodes that we put out a while ago, this is the New York version of yeah. Tangled Up in Blue. What do you like about this version in particular, Ian? Because I think we both agree it's a great song any way you slice it, but why this version? But the New York version, there's just something, there's a, there's a special spirit to it for me. And you can hear it on those other Blood on the Tracks songs. Um, that come from the New York recording sessions initially, um, such as uh, Simplest Fate, such as Buckets of Rain, such as Shelter from the Storm. Um, there's there's just this this like quiet quiet power, quiet fury behind it. Mm-hmm. Not fury as in like anger, but just like a just like a real raging kind of spirit. Um, that I think you you get a little bit more of that in the in the instrumentation on the on the, you know, the, the canonical versions of the tracks, but you lose a little bit of it in the, in the delivery, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. And the lyrics are slightly different. Um, uh, you know, there's the perspective shift that we talked about on the episode from first person to third person uh, that I think makes it a little more interesting. He also mentions Los Angeles in this version, which I'm very fond of. How does he um, mention Los Angeles? I might have missed that. Uh, uh, he's loading cargo onto a truck at an airplane factory in LA, I think. Um, but anyways, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, uh, the, the, 
there's just like a a hushed, uh, austere kind of beauty to to these tracks uh, to me. And the lyric, you can really kind of focus on it and and really um, uh, connect with it in a way that you can't quite so much with the um, with the full bland, full bland, full blown full band, band. Yeah. full blown band versions. Um, and there's a little more to say on on that also, but I'll I'll bring that up here in the next uh, the next time we have uh, a cause to talk about blood on the track songs, which will come sure not too far down the line. Are you? Uh, I, I I know I don't think tangled uh, tangled up in uh, blue was on your it did not end up on, on your my list. No, but while it, uh, that might seem you know like a garish oversight, I I have some other. Um, some other favorites from uh, Blood on the Tracks that do pop up here. And I, I was a little wary of overloading my playlist with Blood on the Tracks cuts. So I really just tried to cut it down to the few that are my personal uh, deep-seated favorites. While I really right. like that song, it's not um, necessarily the one I have the most connection to out of all those tracks. Um, so I did not put it on there, but I'm glad you did. Someone had to. Yeah. Representation matters. (laughs) Uh, what do you got next? My second song pick is on a night like this, uh, from the great, well, from the pretty good planet waves. (laughs) Um, I think, I think it's fair to say the great planet waves. Um, yeah, I think it's the pretty good planet wave, the solid planet <laughs> waves, the dependable planet waves. Yes, um, the stalwart yeah, planet waves. Um, but I, while I like planet waves, um, I don't think that there's a song on it that I really dislike. I love the song on a night like this, and uh, it just makes me smile. To me, it it has everything that is good about the uh country bob era um you know the the nashville skyline style but um sort of amped up energized a little bit and um while i i i do love the country croon it's not what he's doing here um so it's just no. like an interesting sweet spot for me where it's a very happy um country tinge song that um just kind of falls in this uh happy valley of um of Bob Dylan song craft and uh i think it's impossible to hear this and not feel uplifted it's a cute song about being uh snowed in basically with your sweetheart and um having a nice night heating up some coffee grounds and uh, (laughs) talking and kissing all night long. (laughs) Yep. That's what they do. It's impossible to to dislike. I think this this song it's uh, just makes me feel good. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, I, I, uh, 
on a night like this did not make it onto my initial one, but it it was it it was had a strong consideration. It was in my honorable mention section. Uh, didn't end up being the number one Planet Waves selection for me, which will appear right, a little bit right. later. Um, but it was definitely a strong a strong second, I would say. Yeah, this is just um, a, it's it's got a scrappy sort of um, unadorned just uh ride in on the seat of its pants energy too like it it doesn't it's the opposite of overproduced um but it doesn't feel scant or bare it has so much heart that it just uh flies right by great yeah it's just it's just a very fun very simple um uh you know kind of base emotional record in general uh interestingly i'm noting or i'm noticing all three songs that we put down so far all side one track ones That's all the tired horses yeah tangled up in blue and on a night like this which makes sense because as we've talked about you know bob throughout his career has, has obviously paid a lot of attention to album openers and album closers uh so i would i would be willing to bet if if one were to do some sort of statistical analysis of Bob records that the first song and the last song on a lot of these are a lot are of people's favorites, probably. a lot of people's favorites, a lot of his favorites. Um, and you know, kind of universally regarded as some of the best material. So, um, you know, you're, you're seeing it come through right here as we, as we speak, uh, you know, the, the famous Bob album openers and album closers. It's great stuff, folks. We love it. Um, what's your, uh, th- third song? Uh, next one here for me. Um, so here, here's where we're going to start getting into, I think, some of the more um, uh, uh, interesting selections here. Right. Uh, so far, we've had a pretty, you know, I, I guess All the Tired Horses is, is sort of out of left field. Some people uh, really don't like that, I think. Yeah. Um, hopefully, we have made it clear by now what, what big self-portrait boosters we are. Um, but, um, uh, you know, we've got some other some other less appreciated uh, albums, eras, songs to integrate into this playlist. And without uh, equivocating too much, you know, just let her rip. What'd you pick? This, this next one uh, is uh, my second favorite song of the entire decade of the 1970s. I shall be released as recorded during the Budokan tour. Right. This is a very specific pick from you. Yes. Yes, it is. I love it. I just, I don't know what else to say. I, I think I waxed Rhapsody you about did. this you, song. You definitely talked it up quite a bit when we discussed it on the Budokan episode yeah. that it's featured in. Um, I think I, I mentioned that it's not my favorite version of this song. Right. It's, it's a rare instance where I felt the band's version of a song is, is uh, superior. Ugh, uh, ugh. Now this song is so like the the lyric on this uh is so uh kind of simple and and straightforward uh and and non or unpretentious um in in the same sort of way that I think a lot of the best material from Nashville Skyline is where it's 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 super just super direct and and uh you know heart focused instead of head focused, but not in like a dumb way that some of his later shit from the eighties that we've talked about yeah, recently. This this has, has a, a innocence to it. But it's yeah, there's it's not stupid. 
Yeah, there, there's like a there's like a universality to it. Yeah, uh, almost yeah. or you know, there's there's some just like deep, simple wisdom that that he's able to put across in these you know very basic lyrics. I shall be released. Uh, I see my light come shining from the west down to the east. Yeah, I should just clarify. I like this version a lot. It is good. It's not like I'm <laughs> shitting on it. I appreciate it. Um, but so the, uh, you know, just the, the, the version of the song that, that we get on the Budokan tour. And, and I think part of this might be because Budokan is, is at, you know, talk about critically reviled, like self-portrait was, Budokan also, maybe even more so, uh, critically reviled as we talked about at length. Uh, I think decidedly these, so. Yeah, enormously kind of gussied up, um, you know, the Vegas tour version, as it was known, uh, the Alimony tour uh, back in the day. That just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense for, for Bob's material, at least if you uh, have a very basic understanding of Bob, which hopefully if you've been following along at this point, your, your understanding has, has grown and deepened along with ours. Um, but it, you know, just the, the, the arrangement and, and the take that he has on it here is it just like, no, there, there's just a, a, a perfect synthesis between this simple and straightforward lyric and this really kind of, uh, elaborate showman like kind of presentation of it. The guitar line just like give, still gives me shivers every single time I hear it. And, uh, um, you know, the, the backing band or the backing singers, uh, just like it's, it's perfect to me. Um, yeah, I don't know what else uh, what else to say, uh, other than Budokan remains an an absolute favorite of uh, of both of ours, and I don't think this will be the last uh, the last appearance of Budokan material no, on our playlist. It probably won't. It <laughs> surely won't. Well, uh, I think the next song is actually another one that we have an overlap with, for me, and uh, later on for you. The man in me. Fantastic. The Man in Me comes uh, on the album New Morning, which we have gotten a lot of shit for unanimously giving a one out of three star review. That one star goes to The Man in Me. The Man in Me, yes. Um, look, <laughs> there might be some other surprises down the, down the line about um, re, uh, reappraising certain aspects of new morning but overall i think we both stand by what our general feelings and also our general feelings about this song being the strongest of that collection um yes what is there to say about the man in me other than i think it takes um the sort of innocent simplistic love song mode that Bob Dylan was exploring, uh, especially in Nashville skyline. Um, you even see some of it at the end of John Wesley Harding with stuff like, uh, uh, I'll be your baby tonight and down along the cove. And he's elevating it into, uh, the highest, uh, echelons of rock and roll artistry with the song. It's just, uh, kind of unlike any other Bob Dylan love song, really. I think it kind of stands apart in a way. And I don't know, what is the what is the appeal of this song? But like kind of looking at Bob Dylan and seeing ultimately sort of like a shrimpy guy who uh, 
is sort of talking about mustering the courage and the strength of ages, you know, for the woman he loves. Like, I think that's kind of a irresistible Mm. theme. And, and that the song just sounds so good. Like it's just pure dopamine. Yeah. It's, uh, definitely the highlight of new morning as far as i'm concerned i in re-listening to it again i think it's it's interesting like it it a lot of the the stuff that you get from bob or that we've gotten into you know over the last couple months as we've aged out of the 70s into the 80s and stuff seems initially to come out of left field like there's no precedent for it um uh, I'm thinking specifically about like the you know like kind of the the backing vocals um which he, he came to lean so heavily on uh, in this run from, you know, maybe 79 to 86 sort of thing. Um, but even, even here, the man and me, they're, they're appearing. And, yeah. and that's, I think one of the strengths of this song is that, that just kind of cooing, ooing, right. like, um, uh, you know, sweet kind of honeydew vocal in the background behind him. Um, and he's got this kind of, you know, it's not quite the croon, but it isn't also his classic singing voice right. either. It, it's somewhere it's, in between. It's that sweet spot that um, yeah. I, I think also like a version of it or a variation on that appears on uh, at several points on self-portrait, actually, like and um, on some other records um, around this period in the earlier right. part of the 70s where he's right. playing around with sort of aspects of the croon. And then aspects of his more familiar singing style. Um, right. Of course, I'd be remiss not to mention the uh, most famous instance of this song in popular culture, which is the intro to uh, The Big Lebowski, the right. opening credits. Um, a movie which I think uh, I personally am just like so past it in being considered like past it, like over. There's so many people who are like, who think it's old hat to praise this film. Um, but to me, it's a perfect movie. And I just like, I'm, I don't care. I'm not interested in, uh, equivocating about it. I think it's a, a perfect movie. And, uh, I think it was perfectly chosen in that most famous use of the song. Definitely is, is very fitting use of the song. Yeah. I think that the Coen brothers understood that the song is about, uh, accessing some kind of inner strength as, as a sort of like unlikely person to do this. Um, it's, uh, I think a very relatable sentiment, aspirational sentiment. Sure. And, uh, one that I think speaks to, uh, not just me or you, Ian. The man in me will hide sometimes to keep from being seen, but that's just because he doesn't want. Bob Dylan had imposter syndrome as early as 1970. But he got over it in this song. (laughs) (laughs) This song is about getting over imposter syndrome and uh, becoming uh, the man. Becoming a cool dude doesn't strike me as one of the songs that would have been written for the Archibald MacLeish project. Right. Uh, we, of course, are referencing that much of the material on New Morning was apparently written um, in part 
for a, pr- a production, a musical theater style production by the playwright Archibald McLeish. Um, part of what we had an issue with that record is actually that it, it, I, I think both of us can't help but feel that some aspects of it sort of smack of reheated leftovers from an aborted uh, outside project rather than right. being ground from the ground up, you know, built as Bob Dylan songs. Right. Um, but I digress. Uh, I think we, we've said enough about the man and me, but how much, you know, I could go on forever about it. It's great. We'll, we'll come back to new morning. I know, I know that's a, a favorite topic of conversation around these parts. Uh, Evan's two star rating of blood on the tracks and the unanimous one star rating of new morning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I think we'll come back to it sooner rather than later, actually. Anyway, yeah. what's your next pick, Ian? Next pick, we're going back to the self-portrait well. Uh, another self-portrait song without any actual words sung by Bob, uh, unless you count like, you know, la la la. Uh, it's going to be the great Wigwam. Yeah, I, I also, I think I put this initially on my list and somehow it got uh, removed. But It wasn't, uh, it, I, that's, I, I almost like took for granted that that was going to be on there. No, me. no, I, I actually did put it on. I think I accidentally removed it when I sent it to you. So let's just, <laughs> you know, we might as well just say that we both picked it. Cause I, I think we did. Um, it's wigwam wigwam. This is, yeah, uh, I mean, this is kind of the counterpart to all the tired horses on that record. Um, and in some ways it's sort of like, a predecessor to what what you'll hear on uh uh Billy the Kid, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid soundtrack in some in some ways. Some ways. But uh I don't know, what do you like about it? To me it's uh simple as that it's just pure vibes. It is it is absolutely pure vibes. Um I'm gonna try to steer away from describing <laughs> things that way too much in this episode, given my well, performance on oh mercy in this case, I think it's granted it is warranted absolutely it you know it uh it it is it is uh, without a doubt a vibe based track uh and yeah uh, I think like you said sort of the the flip side or um uh you know conclusion of the whatever the arc or the thread begun with all the tired horses, uh, wigwam occurs. It's not the last song on the record, but it's close, right? Like mm-hmm. it's maybe the second or third to last song yeah. on the end of the double LP, right? Like, so you've gone through almost 20 tracks to get here. And it really just, it really does have sort of a cinematic kind of feeling to it. These, these romantic, very warm sound. It's a very warm sounding song. Yeah. Um, the, these very warm sounding horns. This does have um, Bob singing on it though. It does have him singing. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it just, it, it feels like, you know, you almost get the sense with self-portrait that this is some, this is some like grand uh, uh, cinematic narrative that has been told through these bits and snatches, these very odd one-offs and, and cover versions and duplicate versions of songs in some cases, as with Alberta or, you know, mm-hmm. the numerous appearances of, uh, of, of, uh, the, uh, inimitable little Sadie. Um, right. and this is just, this is the sun going down on all of it. This is the scope in and the fade to black. And this is, 
um, this is the way that you ride off into the sun with, um, with self-portrait. And with, and, a, uh, with a title that evokes, like all the tired horses, uh, sort of beatific vision of the West. You've got sure. uh, a nice reference to a wigwam. Yeah, I actually have a, and you know, it it might seem strange to pluck this one out of all of you know Bob's masterful lyrical visions from the nineteen seventies as one of his best, but there there is something just I think maybe looking at my list and your list, like a common kind of theme or thread is like a lot of what we focused on besides you know the canonical classics is are these sort of um, uh, um, digressions really in 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 his career, or these these uh, previews of paths not taken, mm-hmm. directions that he might have pursued but didn't end up, you know, going any further in for whatever reason. That's a lot of the most interesting shit, I think. Uh, particularly in a decade like the seventies, I think, where there was so much fertile ground and so many different directions pursued. By the end of it, um, you know, these little like oddball one-offs here and there, you don't. Know, I, I don't know that I, I would love a whole album of Wigwams uh, necessarily, but on its own, just as one singular, just one, one single diamond one, in the one rough. One single wig, one single wom. A singular wig or wom, yeah. It's, it's perfect. Um, and I think it absolutely belongs in his, in his best material of the 70s right up there along with anything else that has come so far or may, may have yet to come. Uh, couldn't agree more. My my next pick is one that I would say the exact same thing about. Um, just the the fact the the thing about it being one of his best of the seventies, absolutely. And that's a little song called "When I Paint My Masterpiece," mm. and this is, I think, a song that has. It really might be a top three or one of the very favorites of mine of of Bob Dylan's 70s songs and it's one that has flown very much under the radar um for because it hasn't appeared on a proper record ever right right um it was written in 1971 and the version that i'm talking about is the demo version that appears on another self portrait the bootleg series uh volume 10 and um I just think this song, kind of more than almost any other song from this early on in Bob Dylan's career, it reminds me a lot of the songwriting of his most recent work. Hmm. Um, it reminds it. It sounds to me and lyrically feels a lot like something that could have been on anything from the uh, from even time out of mind in some ways, but especially um, like it has sort of a love and theft or tempest or uh, even a um, rough and rowdy ways type of energy to it. Um, And it's hard to say exactly why that is, but I think if you listen to it and then you listen to songs from the last 10, 15 years, 20 years, um, of Dylan's writing, you might see what I mean. It's like what he's was doing on on so uh, dramatically on the most famous stuff from the early '60s, but he's doing it with such 
ease here that it almost goes unnoticed. But right. he's still writing with like so much um visionary flair, but it's done in this very like off the cuff way, but it also is very poignant. Um it's uh about the narrator talking about, you know, wanting to paint his masterpiece. Uh and uh all these journeys that he's taking. Um there's so many funny lyrics too, like on a plane, like on a plane ride, so bumpy that I almost cried. Um, and uh, some just like great sort of phrases that feel uh, freighted with meaning that sort of is greater than the sum of their parts. I I'm kind of being really vague. It's hard to talk about a song like this to me. I think I see what you mean about it sort of fitting in with some of his more recent material. It does have sort of a lyrical similarity to something like I Contain Multitudes. Right, right. Like lyrics like um, uh, days spent fighting in the Coliseum, dodging lions and wasting time. Right. Like that's a great line. Um, just the idea of, yeah, like painting my masterpiece. Um it seems like an immortal idea in Bob Dylan's work that's only become more and more prevalent, even with songs like uh, Mother of Muses on his most recent record, Rough and Rowdy right. Ways, songs about the creative aspiration. Um, I think this is one of the best ones of those. And uh, yeah, I, I just think it's great. Yeah, there, there, there are lots of very, like, you know, kind of deep literate references in the in the song, you know, Botticelli and right. I guess I mean, I don't know if there are a lot of them, but he references Botticelli or Botticelli's niece at least. Uh and, you know, various European kind of locales, the Colosseum, Spanish Steps, Brussels, Rome, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um but he does he does all of it in a sort of sly and and humorous kind of manner. Uh like tongue in cheek kind of thing. Um the same way that he does, I think, on a lot of his more recent material, where he's he's working in references to, you know, Frankenstein mm-hmm. and Indiana Jones and Anne Frank and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and <laughs> JFK's assassination and and Caesar. Yeah, you've, uh, you've like, got the lyrics. It's, it's just like everything kind of collapsed together. Right, exactly. Collapse together is the perfect way to think about it. I mean, you've got the lyric th- that begins the song. On, oh, the streets of Rome are filled with rubble, ancient footprints everywhere. Then later on in the song, sailing around the world in a dirty gondola. Oh, to be back in the land of Coca-Cola. Yeah, that's great. Uh, there's a, In the version that I put on here, though, I believe he says, um, wish I never sold my old Victrola. Nothing yep. like that good old rock and roll. <laughs> uh, just a... Uh, Great and fun. And then the lyric that ends the song, uh, someday everything's going to be different when I paint my masterpiece. I just uh, love that uh, to death. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great song. It's not on my, or it wasn't on my list. I, I, I think it, it's a little bit along the lines of um, like Positively 4th Street for me. Where it just is kind of like slipped by because it never had right. an official release. It it did um, not ever get the the album treatment. Yeah, um, great song though. Um, 
and and uh, definitely something that uh, I think Bob agrees with you on in terms of fitting in with his more recent material. Last played uh, November second, twenty nineteen. One of his wow. his most recent, you know, very last uh, shows played before all this stuff. Jeez, this <laughs> I'm looking at this set list. This rocks actually. Muncie, Indiana, Ball State University, November second, two thousand nineteen. Opens with things have changed. Holy shit! Yeah. And then we have when I pay my masterpiece. That's like five Ow. songs in. Um. We've got uh, we've got pay and blood. This is a, this is a legend. This is a legendary three song run. Whoa! Pay and blood into Lenny Bruce. Whoa! Are <laughs> into kidding? early Roman kings. Holy fuck! <laughs> oh, I am I am beside myself right now. That three song run is killer. <laughs> Holy shit! Uh man. What I wouldn't, what I wouldn't give to be in Muncie, Indiana, on uh, on November second, twenty nineteen. Yeah. Uh, not dark yet. Got to serve somebody. He's still second to last song. Ballad of a Thin Man. Still wheeling that uh, look, one out there. I, I'll give him. I think that now, him doing Ballad of a Thin Man is right, very cool different. Again. Yeah, it's circled back around, but for many. Di- for literally several decades, I think it was just like a bad choice. Yeah. Now he uh, can. I. I'm not. Uh, I'll shut up. You know. Yeah. He can do whatever he fair. wants. He can play Lenny Bruce four times in a row. Pay in blood, Lenny Bruce, early Roman kings is like a Fuck. galaxy brain kind yeah. of set list. That's incredible. Woof. You know, I did just buy this deluxe CD version of of Tempest, like a special edition of it that I just found at a store. Earlier this do you evening, even, do you even have a? I don't have a, a CD player. Device to play a CD on, yeah. No. Uh, but it came with this T-shirt, which I was really disappointed wasn't just a Tempest T-shirt. I couldn't open the box, you know. But what it is is it, it's it's like '60s Bob on a black T-shirt, just like his face, sort of half in shadow, and it says Bob Dylan. 50 years of music. It's, it's a very cool... T- it, it looks like the kind of shirt... Well, I mean, I guess that's probably what it is. I was going to say, it looks like the kind of shirt that, like, you know, your your 65-year-old father would wear. Not your literal 65-year-old father, but one's 65-year-old It's father. an extra large, and it's very <laughs> exactly. big on me. It also came with a small notebook, like just a tiny little journal that you can write in that is just black and on the front in red lettering it says Bob Dylan Tempest I just looked this up on eBay this appears to have been a best buy exclusive yeah yeah apparently <laughs> it is i'm glad i didn't pay more for it than what it's going for standard on eBay but um you know whatever it is what it is uh next track please what do we got here? Um, next one for me. You know, this is one that we probably don't need to spend too much time on. Uh, this is one we all know and love, uh, and one that we'll probably revisit here in a little bit when we get to the big showdown. Uh, this is going to be Simple Twist of Fate. Yeah, it's also on my list. Well, I mean, you know, I, f- I feel like we've already said, what can you say about some of these songs several times in this episode, but literally honestly what can, what can you, you say, say about, about it? simple twist of fit but it's just all i'll say is that we both picked the version from the record because i yeah. i think that we can both agree that it's the far and away the best 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 
think that there's a been a better one um on another recording i mean i'm sure there's probably been some good live versions that are out there uh you know he's played it a million times but for my money this version with these lyrics is uh great it's perfect uh it's one of the best songs that you can listen to yeah exactly Uh, just a sterling example of the I think the real animating spirits or state of mind in uh, or behind Blood on the Tracks. Uh, and, and obviously a sterling example of sort of the Blood on the Tracks template of songwriting. Right. Know, where where uh, the, the chorus lists track these long, lengthy, twisting verses that end in these lines, you know, as a refrain, something that we just saw him, him use to such great effect uh most 15 years later on most of the time exactly yeah uh, it's a tried and tried and true formula for me. and i credit this song in particular with being kind of the reason i even became interested in bob dylan because um i think i've recounted before on the podcast but i was like at summer camp and um some like counselor was like playing this at like a, a the bonfire and i'd never heard the song before right and uh then i looked it up later and um yeah it's just like it this song was powerful enough to like it moved me before I even had ever really uh, had a girlfriend. <laughs> it is it is very much. I, I would I would wager uh, that many thousands of young Bob fans have been inducted into the club based on Simple Twist of Fate. Like this this being your first kind of brush with his material. Um, and getting that sort of, you know, uh, chills down your spine feeling yeah. and, and using this as the entryway into his world. It's a very, uh, you know, universal kind of song as so many of these are. That's a feeling that we've all had at one point in our lives the, or at least longed to have well, yes, at some point. This, this song is about the kind of melancholy that one would hope that, uh, a love would cause in them. Right. Right. I know I've had my personal, uh, you know, demons exercised while listening to this song several times. So it, uh, it, it it's something that I'm I'm sure many of us have all have all. Do you mean exercised? Mm, mm, no, I think I mean yeah. You exercise your demons, doesn't yeah, exercise right? I'm pretty. You're sure. not going to get me with this comestible bullshit. <laughs> exercised is something that you is like a like uh, you excise something from a draft. As an editor, demons are exercised. Not exercise as in right. okay. like exercise no, on right. a treadmill. I'm, I'm exercised wrong. as in the exorcist. I'm wrong in on this one. Get your demons worked ah. out real good. All right, we're back. We're back. We're back square. Yeah. I was waiting to get you back for comestible. You did get me back. Okay. <laughs> uh, now it's up to me uh, to pick the next one, uh, right? It is. My next pick is uh, kind of surprising, maybe. It's also from the Bootleg Series Volume 10, Another Self-Portrait. And this is a song from New Morning. However, it is a different, very different version than the one we hear on that record. And that's, if not for you, alternate version um, from uh, the Bootleg Series Volume 10. This is like a very different approach to the song that is much more of a straight-ahead 
ballad. It's softer. It's slower. There's strings and piano and Dylan singing. And um, while I don't hate the version that's on the record, New Morning, I don't think that it really holds a candle to this version, um, which I think is just a really clear and um, more confidently beautiful uh, version of the song. I think there's a really nice vocal and um, I think it really just more than any other version gets to the heart of what the song is about, which is just Mm. uh, a a very tender and um, clear eyed love song. Um, Of course, I think we both agree that perhaps the finest version of the song that exists in the world is the uh, George Harrison version, but that will not be uh, on this list. Um, So I think the best expression of the song that Bob Dylan has done is this one. And um, yeah, the version on New New Morning just has that kind of like, sort of like self-consciously like corny Buddy Holly type of 50s uh production which is cute but it's not like this mm. yeah i thought about i thought about if not for you definitely a good song you know catchy song but like you said a moment ago you know the the george version really is is the one that exists in reality as far as i'm concerned and um you know this version is I think this version is okay. I actually hadn't listened to it uh, very much. Um, I think, that, honestly, though, the, like the the, the strings lyric, are a little maudlin, but like it, I think Dylan's vocal on it is great. Yeah, it's a, it's a great vocal, it, just like thematically or or something. I don't know. It, it just it 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 seems like a like too heavy handed of an approach to the material. Like this this seems like it should be sort of a jaunty, light hearted, you know, frolicking, skipping along kind of song, which is the which is the new morning version, obviously, which is the all things must pass version. Um, and this one's just a little, a little weighted. A little, a little a bit, little... but I, I see what you mean, but um, I thought I would put it on the, uh, on the, on my list anyway, because I think that I, I like what is being attempted here. And um, I do think that Dylan's vocal does sell the um the more earnest and heavier uh type of approach um but i do see your point so let's let's just uh use this moment to maybe acknowledge that if not for you overall a good song and george harrison uh you know it's like pizza with you know the italians and the new yorkers you know, it was invented by the Italians, perfected by New York. In sure. this case, uh, it was invented by Bob Dylan, perfected the by Italian, the Italian man, George Harrison. <laughs> Giorgio Harrisino. <laughs> but this version's good, and uh, I, I just want to put it on my list because I think more people should listen to it because it's a unique way to experience. What is one of the better songs on a uh, on that album? 
Sounds like New Morning is heading for a uh, two-star reappraisal from you. No. <laughs> Only nine songs in, and we've already had two New Morning suggestions yeah, from you. That's where it ends. <laughs> um, next one for me? Yeah. All right. This is going to be Isis, the Desire classic, but not the Desire version. This is going to, and we're, we're kind of fudging it on these rules a little bit. Yeah, this is well, technically a record that didn't come out until, I don't know, the early 2000, like 2002 or something like that. It's, it's from Bootleg 5. Well, uh, it was a is, performance from the 70s. That's, that's right, all exactly. that should really matter. Right. We're, we're being a little fast and loose yeah, with yeah. You know, how, the, how the rules work here. But yeah, this is Isis as played, as, as delivered uh, during the Rolling Thunder. Uh, tour the specifically you know the first leg of the rolling thunder tour uh as immortalized on bootleg five um and uh and it's really just a a rip roaring vicious kind of version of the track um that is has just this insane energy and um i i, I don't know it, it it's got the same sort of bob is, is sort of taking the same approach on on this track at least uh, that he did with the band on the Before the Flood record right. and tour, uh, where he's just like, you know, uh, uh, amped up and turning all of the energy levels up to 11 at all times. Um, well, for, for a lot of the songs, at least. Um, there is uh, a, a slowdown here and there on some of the acoustic tracks, but, you know, uh, we'll set that aside. Um, but yeah, Isis is a song, in, in, you know, that, that approach doesn't work for every single song in his discography, um, uh, as, as I think we saw in Before the Flood when we talked about it. Um, but Isis is absolutely a song that, that benefits from it. And, and just the way that he has this just like wild eyed kind of cocaine energy on this, this song, you get this a little bit in the Scorsese documentary also where he's got footage of this and Bob's eyes look like his, they're just going to pop out of his fucking skull. You can hear it. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's really just a fantastic, um, rendition of the song. And, and blows the album cut out of the water, which is, is an interesting kind of story song, you know, a little difficult and hard to parse, obviously. Um, but uh, on, on album, it's sort of slow and plotting, and, and you, you kind of get sleepy and bored by the end of it. Um, but, but played this way live, um, I don't know, it just fucking kicks ass, and I love it. Um, and if this, is ha- if, if this is how the song had been, performed initially on the record i think isis would be up there with you know with your tangled up in blues uh in terms of you know just the absolute top of the tops critically speaking um reputation wise at least uh, amongst the the dylanologists out there which we obviously are not no we're um, not that no but uh yeah isis on the rolling thunder like this is this is as good as it got this was this was the reason rolling thunder existed for this kind of performance yeah, I think you put it well. I wouldn't have se- selected it, but I'm glad you did. I just have never really liked this song that much. No, but um, that is, but it yeah. is, yeah, undeniably like a ferocious and uh, impressive performance. And I'm glad we've got some Rolling Thunder representation on here with it. Absolutely. What do you got next? Next, I have kind of an oddball choice, maybe, uh, which is another self-portrait cut. And it's a cover. Uh, it's early morning rain. Mm-hmm. This is one that um, I think is just kind of one of the highlights of self-portrait for me because it um, 
it just uh, kind of sounds great. It feels good to hear. Um, <laughs> it like the title. I mean, it's just it. It's refreshing. It's an early morning rain uh, on your face, and it uh, sort of just seems to wash away the gloom. It's a uh, who? Who's the original guy who did this? Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, you got. Is it Gordon Lightfoot? I believe it was a Gordon Lightfoot number. I guess it sounds like a Gordon Lightfoot song. Um, let me just double check that. Yeah, that's right. It was a Gordon Lightfoot track, and um, I think Bob Dylan does a great job with it. There's that sort of like beautiful Spanish-esque guitar um, kind of lilting all its way through it. And uh, I just think it's really sweet. It's one of these things that I've grown to really love. Um, this album for for self-portrait um it's just got some like pretty songs that um are not super high stakes but um i'm glad are in in the catalog so i don't know what else i have to say about it other than uh it it is it feels good to put this on and to listen to it while you're cooking dinner or uh walking your dog yeah. I think I think low stakes is absolutely the right way to describe it. Uh, I'd kind of forgotten about this. Um or, you know, this isn't like when I when I think of self-portrait, this isn't one of the ones that like leaps to my mind initially. You know, it's all the tired horses and wigman and it's copper kettle and it's days of 49 and it's Alberta. Um and it's Quinn the Eskimo and stuff. And this is one that just like it sort of fades into the background, I think, when you listen to the entire record, or at least it has for me. But uh, I was I was really uh, refreshed or, or pleased to listen to it again when you uh, you know sent your playlist over. I, I think it is absolutely great, and he's got that. We're, we're leaning a little bit further towards the croon on this one. It's not all the way there like it is on Nashville, but it's uh, it's not too far off, and it's just a very pleasant and simply delivered, simple little track. Very, uh, very nice. I love it. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's just nice. That's why I put it on my list. <laughs> Fair enough. What do you got? Well, we're going back to the back to the blood on the tracks. Well, here, and we're gonna gonna pick back up on the New York theme. Uh, this is, of course, Idiot Wind. Right. Um, I suppose I should just mention that I too have Idiot Wind on my list. However, this is where we talk about uh, there are two different versions. The versions of Idiot Wind. The yes, to 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 relitigate this once again. For me, I mean, it really comes down to just what is what. What do you want to take away from from this song as a listener? And I prefer to think of this track as this this sort of um act of lashing out by this this wounded character who has been hurt uh, and probably has hurt himself um or has hurt another party himself um but feels sort of uh indignant and and wronged and righteous and then by the end of it all sort of comes you know comes back around full circle and uh it's no longer you're an idiot babe it's we are idiots babe um, and that is literally, that's the last verse in this right. version, in the New York version, and that's the last verse in the, in the album version as well. 
but um, you know the way that it's delivered here. Once you finally get there, this kind of resolution to this twisting, long-winded uh, screed, really. Um, uh, it's uh, I don't know. It's just it's it's eerie and 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 heartbreaking and kind of like you know just just the perfect resolution to this to this track. Um, should also note the sort of like the the spooky kind of ghostly organ right. that you get on the New York version. Again, just like the 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 shivers in the spine sort of thing. It's it's like the perfect kind of accentuating touch to what's going on here. Um, and uh, yeah, it makes it a, it makes it just a, a perfect kind of sad sack. Um, you know, shoulders slumped, tears and rain kind of listen for me. So while I totally respect and understand the uh, version pick that you have here, which I think is is kind of more of like the ruminating uh, tears staining your diary version. Um, the version that I picked is the, the album cut, which I, I love because it's famously um, angry. And um, I think that the uh, resolution of it, the whole instrumentation, everything about it is amped up. There's, he's basically screaming, um, or it, it, not really, but it feels like a scream all the way through. (laughs) And, um, I do think that the, the resolution of it actually has a similar effect on me of, um, you know, lyrically it's the same of we are idiots, babe, um, kind of like implicating himself. But there's something about the way that this version continues that amped up tone um, and stays at 11 um, that really drives that home for me. And I, I do, to me, it doesn't make it any less nuanced. It actually just makes it more intense and mm. um, in some ways kind of more transcendent. The, the high... You know, we t- going from a track like uh, "Early Morning Rain," the lowest of stakes in, <laughs> in terms of how the feeling of listening to that song. I feel like both of these versions of "Idiot Wind." I mean, but in my opinion, the album version, especially, are like the highest of high stakes uh, in terms of Dylan's seventies uh, output. This is. For my money, Idiot Wind on the record version on Blood on the Tracks is like the apex predator of Bob Dylan's 1970s songs. Yeah. It's absolutely solid gold, and uh, it's a solid gold dagger into your heart. Yeah, and I, think that's, that, I think that's sort of the, the, the conventional wisdom. I, I know that uh, former guest Dan Grant um, uh, feels very similarly to you on that note. He much prefers the, uh, the, the pissed and righteously angry version of idiot Wind to this sad bastard, cut, um, which, you know, makes, makes sense. Certainly there's just something about the, you know, the added texture of this, yeah. this other cut, uh, which for my money just really, really does it, um, for me. And I think, I mean, we're talking about prime rib versus a porterhouse here. They're both right. Uh, you can't go wrong. Folks. Very good. Um, yeah, I don't know. For me, 
just like we are idiots, babe. It's just like it's like he's realizing it in the moment of yelling it. It's like in uh, mm-hmm. like in Goodfellas when she throws the cocaine down the toilet, <laughs> and then they right. at the end of that screaming match, they're just sobbing together, like you know something like that. I uh, I also want to just put a note in for slight lyrical change on the New York cut uh, through the I Ching yesterday. Said there right. might be some thunder at the well. <laughs> Love that line. Okay, I <laughs> I prefer my idiot win to not have the like. Uh, hippie mysticism angle and that's it's good shit what you got next <laughs> i think we have a, a winner uh, both of us have picked this it is knocking on heaven's door oh that was the next one that was literally the next number on that's my, yours on my too list. well then perfect yep. it's knocking on heaven's door but 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 <laughs> more like knocking on Japan's door because it's the <laughs> knocking on the door of the east. <laughs> this is the version from Live at Budokan. And um I should also mention uh Jamaica because yeah. this is the white dreads version of <laughs> knocking on heaven's door man. Yes. I don't think either of us knew that we needed a reggae version of Knocking on Heaven's Door in our lives. But when we both really started to listen to this and learn to love it in the uh, heady days of the summer of 2020, there is no better song to grill to. Um, No better song to crack a cold one to in the backyard than this version. Of the classic, knocking on heaven's door. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know the 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 just good energy from Budokan remains uh, consistent, and uh, some version of knocking on heaven's door had to be on here, obviously. Uh, so we could have had we could have had the Pat Garrett cut. I, we dude, the had Pat the, Garrett cut is great. You know, it's great, absolutely. Before the flood cut, also very good. Um, but the Budokan version, you know, the, the, these, this, this reinterpretation, this reinvention of these tracks is like I was talking about earlier with Wigwam and, um, all the tired horses. Like this is, this is a tantalizing glimpse of an alternate dimension Bob that never ended up coming to fruition. Honestly, probably for good reason. I don't, I don't know if I would have wanted to hear. It comes to fruition as hell on at Budokan because this is not the only one that gets this treatment. Um, Oh, also, uh, what's Maggie's farm? Maggie's does Maggie's farm have a reggae thing going on? Maggie's farm doesn't have the reggae. It's got the disco kind of, um, violin. The, the other, um, don't think twice. uh, It's all right. Don't think twice. Exactly. Yeah. There is an, I've been traveling (laughs) on it. It sounds like, uh, I'm going to marry her anyway. Yeah. Something like that. Which Um, I think we talked about. When Which we, we did talk about, yeah. Why you gotta be so rude. Don't think twice about being so rude. <laughs> sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. The flutes on Knocking on Heaven's Door. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it's just great. Um, I think we are about to hit kind of a stretch of uh, tracks that we've, that I've, for, for my part anyway, that we both have picked. But what's... Yeah. 
What's your next I think you're one? right. Yeah. So the next for me, we'll skip over Heavens or we'll not skip over it. We've we've just done it. Yeah. Uh this is one I know that uh we both share as well. And another side one track one. Changing of the guards. You know, that's mine too. My next one. Look at that. On my list, changing of the guards. Our cycles are aligned. Yeah. We are both on our period. Uh, <laughs> changing of the guards is the what? It's the best song on Street Legal. Absolutely. And it's, um, again, I think a song that's kind of unique in a lot of ways. Like, there's not really a lot of Dylan songs that feel like this. Um, that have this particular blend of spices, herbs and spices. Uh, you've got, like, the the female backing vocals, but... I don't know what else is it. There's like this sort of post disco sensibility hiding in there somewhere. And, a kind of Baroque lyricism. Yeah. Lyrically, I think it's, it's sort of of a piece with some of the tracks from desire. I, I, I think there's actually, you know, sort of similarity between what's going on here and what was going on with ISIS, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Or, Very colorful sort of story book energy. Right. Yeah. And it's not clear if it's taking place in the past or the present or the future or in some sort of magical realm. And it's not clear if Bob himself is a member of this story or if there's a stand in for him or if he's just narrating it about characters other than himself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it um, it's in line with all of that. But yeah, I mean, Street Legal, definitely something that is sort of an oddity in his career as an album, uh, sort of in between. It's after the mid seventies come down of you know the the highest of the highs again commercially or critically speaking um, reputationally speaking but it's before we dive into the Christian period so it's just this one kind of odd moment in his uh, in his life and it's also when his marriage is collapsing obviously like we talked about the recording process uh, it was it was sort of fraught and uh, and challenging out there in rundown studios in Santa Monica yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, the resulting album is 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 really a uh, a fantastic work um, from top to bottom. I think I'm I'm interested to we'll, we'll put a pin in this and come back to this during the during the reappraisal of the three star section. Uh, I'll say that it's a, this is a great song. <laughs> great song. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's definitely it is it is the it is the 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 proof of the the street legal kind of concept um, that that it could work. And I think like we talked about earlier, it's, it's sort of street legal is the closest thing to the Van Morrison sound that Bob ever got. I don't know um, about that. You don't, you don't think? No. What is, what is the closest to the Van Morrison sound that Bob ever got? Well, it's hard to say because I think there are actually a lot of songs that Bob Dylan just, he just doesn't sound like Van Morrison at all. Well, the Van Morrison sound, sound to me is so much of a, a, it's just the sound of Van Morrison's voice. Like there, that early morning rain could have been a Van song, you know, in the early morning rain, if he did it like that. Right. I meant more like the Van Morrison, like, you know, kind of the, the, the music of Van Morrison, not necessarily the, the the vocal delivery. I don't know that uh, I, I'll have to think more about before I c- can say. All right. 
I'm sure that Van has done some things that are kind of like this, though. I think I see what you mean um, in some ways, for sure. Um, was it my turn now? Mm, I don't... Uh, yeah, it is your turn. Yeah. Okay. Well, then my next one would be Precious Angel mm. from Slow Train Coming. Yep. Uh, my favorite song on Slow Train Coming is Precious Angel. Um, I think it's just, uh, the best use of that band and that sound and that energy that he had for that record. Um, because I, I like how light it is, but, um, also has some very heavy lyrics. Um, it's like, very intense in terms of its spiritual certainty and the gloom and doom and foreshadowings of hell and damnation. But <laughs> it's all about uh, a, a woman and, or like a, maybe an angel, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like got a great, uh, a great mix of, levity and and sobering um seriousness I, I really think it's just great and that guitar is uh you know top notch yeah definitely the strongest single track from slow train i think which is not really saying uh anything new necessarily i think this is universally regarded as probably the 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 best track from slow train, but there's, you know, there's a reason that it is regarded this way. It's because it is, it's, uh, it's such a great, uh, spirited kind of song from top to bottom. It's got so many great lyrics. Um, you know, I just couldn't make it by myself. I'm a little too blind to see, um, when men will beg God to kill them and they won't be able to die. And, uh, you're the queen of my flesh, girl. You're my woman. You're my delight. You're uh, the thing about uh, you torch up the night. You know, there's so many memorable lines all all the way through it. Don't forget about the uh, the lines about uh, talking about Muhammad. You're talking and Buddha. about Buddha. You're talking about <laughs> Muhammad in one breath. You didn't mention one time the man who a criminal's came death and died a criminal's death. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Like he's like scolding yeah. a, a very a very intense vocal performance from Bob. Also, um, to the point where very, it almost breaks down. Like I'm a little too blind to see. It's yeah, like, like you can really hear he's, he's straining on. Yeah, he, he it's it it doesn't sound great uh, several times, especially uh, up against the backing vocals, which are on this track in the background. But still, st- there's still. There's something you know I, I, that that is is sweet and and uh, admirable about well, that. Well, yeah, I mean it's cool that you see and you, I mean you hear him um, giving everything up and not worrying about how it sounds. Like it, it makes that um, f- fervor all the more uh, believable. Which he knows that as long as the Lord can see how invested he is, that's yeah, all that matters. I think that he literally believed that when he was <laughs> making this song. Well, what's next, Ian? 
I think that there's one that is both on on both our lists, which is yep. Sarah. Sarah, absolutely. The uh, closing track of Desire. We're back to the first and last tracks on the record theme here. Right. Um, this is pretty much my favorite song on Desire. Um, I think we should, you know, we can mention that there's a lot of good songs on Desire, of course, but I don't know. Do you think that this is the best one on Desire? Um, I think uh, I in terms of that way, in terms of Desire cuts, I think it's the best song on Desire. <laughs> yeah, um, that's what I mean. Yeah, like I said earlier, I think Isis, uh, you know, is there, there's much more to that song there that you get in a live setting, um, which would put that on the top for me. But in terms of just what is on the recorded piece of wax itself, yeah, I think Sarah's probably probably it, uh, if only because it's so out of out of step with everything else that's going on on Desire, um, and uh, certainly out of step with everything Bob had been doing recently, um, it, just in, in the, the absolute naked, direct honesty of, uh, of a track like this, which is literally about Sarah Lowndes, uh, and, and Bob is like writing about his own self-mythology in it, staying up all night at the Chelsea Hotel, writing Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands for you. Which is, of course, like, as I've said many times, like, the, uh, you know, the highlight of the song. It's like the biggest flex of all time. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, he's, he's appearing in his own, like, uh, extended universe as which, a character. Which is rare for him to actually acknowledge his own, uh, self mythology in that, like, baldly autobiographical way. Right. That's, uh, uncommon to say the least and so then to pair that to have that appear in a song that's you know directly to and named after his wife it's um you know at like the tail end of their marriage uh, as sort of like a bid to win her back there's just too much uh going on here to not uh earn it a spot it's like so fully torqued with emotion and uh I don't know what else there is to say about it, but that it does in in a, in some ways I feel like this is a really interesting song as almost a coda or companion piece to Blood on the Tracks. It feels kind of like the closing of that chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And Blood on the Tracks an album which at the time and to this day he maintains you know is not directly inspired by his own personal life or right. his, and I'm his, the his romantic of experiences. Yeah. Uh, but I think that speaks to, uh, and, and his willingness to even write himself and his own song catalog into the song speaks to the, like the, just the, the level of uh, necessity or investment or whatever that he felt in writing this. Song. Like, like, you know, he, he, the willingness to break those barriers down must've been so great because those barriers are so high for him for the most part in, in not making it appear as if he's writing autobiographical songs in not referencing his own, you know, kind of mythology that he's crafted for himself. And so to do both on this song about his soon to be ex-wife on a, on an album that otherwise, 
had very little to do with love songs. You know, Hurricane, uh, Isis, sort of a love song, but not really. Mozambique is Mozambique. It's, it's a um, love song to Mozambique. The great nation of Mozambique, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, Desire often not thought of as a, as a very personal um, or romantic kind of record. Um, and yet, this is the note on which the record ends. Literally, the last song on the last record before mm-hmm. his divorce would, you know, become finalized. Um, right. I think I, a, I might have a singular moment. I might have said on on the episode. I don't know if I if we if I mentioned this, but um, this moment is like the the moment in on GP by Death Grips, where he, where uh, MC Ride says his actual name in the song. Uh, right. I think you might have mentioned that. I don't know actually. if I cut that out or included it in that episode, but it is, uh, regardless, it is like that, that like, uh, you know, a famously, um, mercurial artist who never really lets on too much about their personal life. Uh, just like out of the blue in a moment of highest emotion, giving you that, uh, you know, dropping the mask and, uh, that earns it a spot. If nothing else, it's, uh, yep. yeah, really something. Uh, what, what next? next? We're getting down, we're getting down to down the nitty gritty here. Last couple. I think, uh, shelter from the storm is one we both had, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, sort of the flip side of this, um, and all of that pain as to quote Bob, you know, talking about, uh, blood on the tracks. Um, this is, I think one of the, uh, you know, I only picked a couple of songs from blood on the tracks, but I think this is one of the most beautiful and enduring and one that I think stands apart on its own, the best, um, outside of that album. I think this one really just holds its own as a, as a great song, a great and timeless song. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, there's, uh, again, well, I, feel like, I feel like we're leaning on this, uh, what, what is there to say about these songs kind of crutch a lot, but yeah. the, really, literally, what is there to say well, what on, is about there to Shelter say? from the Storm? I, I would just say that I think that this song and the, the lyric at the center of it, um, it's a love song, but it's, it's also, it somehow, it goes beyond that because it's, it's kind of just like, a rare song that addresses the abrasiveness of the world. It has sort of an existential quality. The storm here, you know, kind of being something that's not out of place that we, as we've seen it before in some of Bob Dylan's most epic compositions, like hard rain's going to fall basically uses the same metaphor. Um, I feel like gates of Eden and, you know, chimes of freedom it's of a piece with those like really grand, almost biblical uh, tone, uh, that sort of biblical tone that he strikes sometimes. And I right. think Shelter from the Storm is one of the most crucial pieces of that uh, sort of song s- styling that only Bob Dylan really ever, is the only one who really, one of the few who can really pull that off, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, um, absolutely. The yeah, just the lyric, sh- you know, I'll give you shelter from the storm. It takes what is maybe on the surface a banal sort of uh love sentiment into I think 
of basically like a spiritual and religious um, realm. It makes right. it, um, it's deeper than just talking about the physical world. Right. Uh, the refrain, you know, I'll give you, come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. Very simple, straightforward, very true. And it works so well counterposed against the the other stuff in all of the verses, I think. These line like the line like every single one of these verses has just a fucking like knockout stunner yeah. kind of line. I came in from the wilderness, a creature, a creature void, void of, form, of form in a world of steel eyed death and men who are fighting, fighting to, to be, be warm. warm. Fighting to be warm, yeah. Yeah. Uh poison in the bushes, blown out on the trail, hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the corn. Um uh, my favorite, probably, which doesn't come until the very last, the, just the very last verse. Well, I'm living in a foreign country, but I'm bound to cross the line. Beauty walks a razor's edge. Someday I'll make it mine. If I could only turn back the clock to when God and her were born. Yeah, Jesus. Fucking mind-blowing. Uh, I'm in. She said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. You know, it's probably corny to be going on and on about how great a song and how great the lyrics from Shelter from the Storm are, but it really is a fucking amazing song with just Endless amazing lines. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, I mean, even the first lyric, "'Twas in another lifetime, one of toil and blood." Yeah. When blackness was virtue and the road was full of mud. Uh, I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. It's just, uh, it's perfect. I don't know what there is. Uh, what is there to say? I guess we've said it. <laughs> well, I think the next song... Is one that uh, is just a me pick. I don't think that you've also picked this one, but it's another sort of um, uh, off the beaten track sort of selection from Self Portrait, and it's uh, <laughs> it's Belle Isle, um, the, the, the blooming the blooming bright star of Belle Isle or Bright Isle as the case may be. Right. Um, I I just think that this is sort of like early morning rain uh i don't know a little different in that this is i think just a timeless love song that has uh everything right and nothing wrong with it uh it has a beautiful melody it's simple it's catchy and um it feels like it's existed forever. Like, whereas shelter from the storm is sort of like a, like postmodern or post biblical <laughs> sort of song. Uh, th- this one, Belle Isle is just like the platonic ideal of a classic, uh, romantic song to me. Right. I just think it, it's great. It's executed perfectly, and sometimes you don't want anything more than that. It's just like a, like a perfectly cooked omelet. It will never disappoint you. Yeah, Belle Isle, similar, like you said, I think to early morning rain. To me, in, in that it, it's another one from Self Portrait that sort of fades into the background and doesn't grab my attention quite as much. Uh, and it's not uh, attention grabbing. Yeah, but every time it comes on, I I feel a little. Uh, it sparks joy, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely with you on early morning rain 
uh, in, in in terms of it belonging here. Belle Isle, you know, it it's nice. I don't know that it's uh, it's my tip top favorite, but I I respect the thoughts and opinions of my fellow Joker man, and and will not question. Yeah, well, maybe uh, one day when you see that blooming bright star of Belle Isle, you'll change your tune. Perhaps. Uh, I think uh, last one for me uh, here is going to be, and here we're going to come back to, come back to how'd you phrase it? The 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 really solid, the the pretty good, <laughs> the planet waves, yeah, the, the dependable. The, it's always going to be there. Planet waves. Planet waves, uh, and that would of course be. Forever Young, uh, not not Forever Young Two, the fast version. Forever Young One, the slow version, the real version, the good version, the, um, the version that everyone knows, really. The version everyone knows, but the version about which Bob was apparently self conscious uh, enough right, for him right. to record it with the fast version and then cram both of them onto the record for God knows what reason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think this one is is of a piece and fits in with with your "I shall be released" and your um, um, well, I guess maybe, yeah, knocking on heaven's door too. Kind of just in yeah, yeah. In, in that I it's a very it's, it's a very the, it's in that sort of same category. Yeah, that a very simple, class. simple and and um, straightforward lyric. It doesn't have any of the uh, detailed kind of flourishes of your "Shelter from the Storm." Um, but it's no, you know, that doesn't make it a lesser song. It, it, it is just a very, um, very true and very, very emotional kind of, uh, heartfelt track, uh, written also, I think, well, it came out in 74, so presumably written 73 or, you know, somewhere around that time as, as he was stepping into his life as a father. And I assume, you know, is about Jacob, um, or, you know, his other, kids uh you know and watching them begin to age and and grow up um just feels like a very kind of innocent and um and and again sort of atypically emotional track on his part well i i think that it's maybe was it was possible it was written with his children in mind but i think the real power of it comes when you think about it in reference to uh people who are old and people who are aging as we all do um and I, I think that it's something that it was, uh, he was probably kind of like, it just shows how in touch he has always really been with like the big picture of, of things. I think to have written this at such a relatively young age, um, this song, which is, uh, so much about the importance of keeping some kind of joy and light in your life. Uh, and there's a reason why people like play this at funerals, play this at weddings, play this at right. every kind of important life event. Um, and uh, it's because it's about uh, the importance of, you know, it's an aspirational song. It's, it's, and it's a prayer in a lot of ways. It's, you know, may you is so much of the language of it. Right. Um, may God bless and keep you always is in this song. Like it's literally a, a religious song in in a lot of ways. Um. So yeah, it's a it's a good pick, good pick, yeah. Ian. Great song. So the last pick for me is um, 
an older song, but uh, an iteration of it from the 70s, which is I Want You from Live at Budokan. And uh, I think this one is necessary to include just because it's got, um, it's a great example of Bob Dylan in the 70s totally reimagining a song, but uh, instilling it with so much feeling and uh, emotion and uh, really giving it a new life in Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Going over to the land of the rising sun really reinvigorated him, uh, as evidenced by this performance. Yeah, Um, I want you, in parentheses, in Japan. In Japan. Um, Yeah, it's it's a great version of the track, and, and a very interesting reinterpretation of the original Blonde on Blonde classic. The guilty uh, undertaker sighs, the lone smoking grind of case. Silver saxophone says I... C- should refuse you. Yeah, should it's you, it's yeah. got... um This version of it, it sounds like sort of... He, like he's a magical uh, flying carpet rider, uh, sort of... <laughs> romancing a, a princess under the stars. It's a uh, like very like mystical sounding. It's got like this. Is it has a flute? I believe does have a flute. Yeah, it's it's a very spare, stripped down kind of arrangement. Just this sort of warm, strummy electric guitar, and then a flute. Basically, there isn't even any percussion. Right, but with with that. A uh, stripped down approach, he still manages to make it into like a completely new uh, version of the song. Yeah. I want you so bad. So that's my picks. And I think that does it. Wraps us up with a nice, cool 20. Um, a solid chunk of self portrait representation, I think, as we. Uh, as we would have expected, self-portrait and blood on the tracks definitely the two most uh, two most common records. I think on this this playlist, a little more heavily weighted towards the early '70s stuff, but you know that's uh, not not to be too surprising. Yeah. I think uh, given what was going to happen later on in the in the, in the later end of the decade. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh our playlist um we'll probably put that in some kind of order and uh that'll be linked uh, in this episode yeah uh, something please, you can actually act uh you know interact with and listen to absolutely and please uh shout at us and uh at us and uh scream get, at us and criticize get us angry and- about songs that we didn't include or songs that we did include we love to hear it um and uh you know uh, we uh live for the pain of all of your anger directed at us. We are pain pigs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think now it's time to get into a very interesting segment, which will be the sort of capstone of this retrospective episode. And that's um, Three Stars Revisited. This is yep. going to be our reappraisal of everything we gave one to three stars in the the period of the actually we're going to include the 60s records in this um so 67 to 
79. And we're going to talk about what has changed and what we staunchly defend to the death. And what is not, yeah. Well, uh, shall we just get into it? Uh, the three stars revisited. <laughs> Starting with John Wesley Harding. The very first Jokerman episode all those months ago. Right. A long time ago. Um, in this instance, things have changed for me. I initially gave this record two stars out of three. And you did too, Ian. I did. But I think we both have changed our minds. What would you give it now? One star. No. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's this is a three star for me, as it is for you, right? Yeah, yes, for me it is a three star. Yeah, you scared me. Yeah, I wanted to wanted to throw a curveball at you. I think I I don't think we were even doing the three star. No, no, uh, the three star system didn't even appear until New Morning Side B. Well, there you have it, folks. You can you can plug that into the Jokerman uh, Wikipedia, the Jokerman uh, <laughs> fan wiki. Yeah. Uh, the three for the three star system page doesn't even appear until New Morning Side B episode. But we retroactively went back and and uh, assigned things ratings. Right. I think for my part, I was a little bashful and I didn't want to start off, you know, with such a limited palette of rating options to choose from. I didn't want to start off. Uh, the the first ratings with a three star right off the bat, especially right. knowing uh, what what rating I was going to assign Nashville, uh, which came right after it, and just you know make it seem as if every record is a three star record. Well, well, three stars is hard, and I think that what we're about to get into is that it is, uh, is... a situation which causes some uh, agita sometimes and some mistakes. Tensions are high, and the stakes mistakes are high. can be made. Yeah, so. Um, yeah, I think that we both recognize that John Wesley Harding, you know, a lot of this has changed our opinions, like like walking through all of these records and really getting this like widescreen perspective of Bob Dylan's oeuvre as we have. Um, I think we both can look back now and and see that John Wesley Harding kind of has so much going for it. Um and very little going against it. It is really a unique record that has uh, heaps of charm, a lot of depth, and um, does not uh, overstay its welcome. It's kind of perfect uh, in its own way. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's it it really is sort of the perfect come down from blonde on blonde, and a, a consciously smaller, simpler record. But, but a record that couldn't have been made by him before something like Blonde. And like he had to go yeah. through Blonde on Blonde to be able to get to this sort of creation, um, uh, or or writing kind of method. Um, also notable that the playing on this record, I think, which is just uh, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. yeah, the uh, the percussion, the drum kit, um, and the the bass guitar, I think, is the the not even secret star of the show because I don't think it's really a secret. It's just like it it, it is uh, it it's there as this bedrock kind of elastic 
underpinning um, uh, of all of these songs. And it's so, uh, it's just propulsive and, and interesting. Um, you know, he, 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 he still had this really interesting kind of sound, I think, moving on into Nashville and on some of the material from, um, from uh, Self-Portrait. But the cohesive kind of vibe that he's going for here is is a really one of a kind kind of thing. Yeah, it's so different, I, so far away from what you got on Blonde on Blonde. I, I don't just, even it's, think that it's, it's awesome. just a cohesive uh, vibe. I think it just is cohesive. Like it just is a cohesive record that is quietly, you know, really confident and uh, yeah, three stars. Three stars. Next, which brings us to. The Great Nashville Skyline, my first original three-star pick. This one's easy for me. I stand by it. And I gave it two stars, but um, now I also give it three stars. because Well, well, well. Uh, I've come around Look to... who's coming around. Again, I mean, it's a similar sort of situation. I think initially I always thought of this record as being kind of lightweight. Um, a little bit... Um, Un- unimpressive just like in in its ambition but i've really grown to um admire and and really relish the um as we've discussed earlier in the episode just sort of low lower stakes um just sort of functionally pleasant music um that approach that bob dylan sometimes takes and I think that uh, on this record, it's kind of just executed so effortlessly and with such, uh, you know, just a, an abundance of of spirit and uh, ease that it's impossible for me not to change my mind. I, I love it. I love what it I'm is, glad you- what it stands for and what it doesn't try to do honestly. I, I'm glad you've seen the air of your ways. Yeah. I mean, giving it two stars I think is pretty fair, but I think that where I stand now having seen a lot more, <laughs> you know, having having been shown <laughs> such sights by by Pinhead and the Cenobites of Bob Dylan's mid-career, um, <laughs> I, I can now fondly recall my time listening to Nashville Skyline and uh, eagerly you know, anticipating hearing those great songs once more. Uh, well, that brings us to, I think, the first official release from the 70s and one that we've already talked about quite a bit uh, and marks your first initial three-star That's right. rating. The Great Self-Portrait. And I will say it is The Great Self-Portrait. I think I still, I, of all of my three-star reviews, three-star rankings of the three-star system so far, I think that uh, of all the controversial type ones anyway, I think that three stars for Self-Portrait is something I really stand by. As you've seen in my picks from the 70s of the best tracks, it showed up a lot. And I think that the way that I think about this song is kind of an extension of how I've come around to really appreciate um, Nashville Skyline in that um, I think it's just kind of really 
um, enjoyable to see Bob Dylan enjoying music. I feel like that's kind of what it is uh, about this record that I love is that so much of it, it's almost like a like magical prototype of the theme time radio hour where Bob Dylan is like just kind of not only just playing songs like as a DJ that he likes, but literally playing them and in like varying styles and then throwing in some like oddball uh, original compositions like All the Tired Horses and Wigwam. I mean, between all of that, I just think that it's like really hard not to love this thing, this very unusual thing that uh, is self-portrait. Everything about it is just kind of infinitely charming to me at this point. So three stars. Yeah, you know, I, I this was a this was a two star for me initially. Part of my mind says it should remain at two stars, but the other part of my mind that makes this want to be something that's interesting to listen to, or at least not even less interesting than it already is to listen to, uh, makes me want to adjust my rating here. Uh, so I think I'll go ahead and do that. Self-portrait, three stars. I think it absolutely belongs up there in the, uh, in the canonical run of Bob material extending back to uh, freewheeling. Uh, that uh, that so many throughout so much of his career have thought of self-portrait as beginning this sort of precipitous decline, that the bloom coming off the rose, so to speak, uh, when in fact it's really just it is it it is, it is to the borrow rose. another it is the rose, and and to borrow the title of another record in Bob's discography, it it literally is another side of Bob Dylan. Yeah. Yeah, uh, a, a side that he had not yet revealed to the general public, um, but a side which I think is is more true and um, um, uh, central to who he is as a recording artist and as an artist in general. Not as this, you know, this prophet, this this uh, this voice of a generation, but as as the as latest in a long run of you know storytellers and showmen. Um, and um, and and performers, um, and uh, something that has been made clear right up until this day with you know the, the Sinatra covers, um, and and self portrait I think is is the start sort of the the, the planting of that seed well, initially that that he would go on to water throughout the rest of his career. And as a, as an interpreter, really uh, a curator of music, um, I, I think that this is kind of the first time that you really get a sense of his um, his personal taste, which uh, I find really fascinating. And uh, I think it only enriches the experience of listening to him. So the chance to hear yeah. a whole, like, miraculously double album of nothing but that is... Uh, it's fun to me, especially because it pisses off people who are like slavishly dedicated only to the early stuff, like as opposed to seeing this as a generous peek behind the curtain. Yes. Yeah. The cursed Stephen Thomas Erlewine. You're on notice. Of allmusic.com. Uh, <laughs> what, what we have next? 
Uh, next is going to be New Morning. The other 1970s yeah. or the other 1970 release, New Morning. It's one star for me still. Same here. Haters, uh, you know, keep hate. My issue with this is just that knowing that it was made, uh, a lot of these songs were made for this project with Archibald McLeish for this musical that never really got off the ground. I just can't help but feel that what we have with New Morning is a collection of sort of warmed over ideas that were made for some other purpose that crucially, this is the crucial point that irks me. I feel like Bob Dylan was trying to pass off as a proper Bob Dylan album release. And I think what we get is something less than a proper Dylan record. Um, Of course, it still has at least one incredible song on it. But, you know, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, I think I think the 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 general kind of um, urge or most common sort of approach to New Morning is to is to think of this as this this is this oddball collection of of songs with Father of Night and with Winterlude and with um, um, uh, Three Angels and stuff um, and um, and Dogs Run Free, obviously. And that is true. Like those are all there, but uh, like they, it, it, it's it's like a less than the sum of their parts kind of thing. Right. Like they're and, just sort and of. It's called New Morning, as if to like sell, like trick you into thinking like, "Wow, it's a new start," but it's right. not. Well, and that's the other thing, and and I think that that really speaks to like the, um, one of the worst tendencies of Bob at this particular moment in his career and, and something he'll sort of drift towards and then away from and then towards and away, you know, it, he, he kind of wavers back and forth throughout his life um, in terms of how, how much he sticks to this. And that is like the, the willingness to conform to and respond to the expectations of the audience and the record company. Um, and, and this, I think is the first instance of that where, um, you know, the self portrait had come out six months earlier uh, reviled, obviously, Grill Marcus in his uh, in his Rolling Stone review. What is this shit? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was it was uh, just a clear sort of bomb, uh, critically and commercially, and and so I think that this record is Bob kind of for the first time in his career, sort of bending to commercial pressure and and the pressure of expectations of those around him to try to satisfy the demands of of what people would put on. Him. And so, yeah, absolutely. The title New Morning speaks to that. And, you know, the track New Morning, Day of the Locust, If Not For You, you know, some of the, the catchier, poppier songs um, seem like they're supposed to be these just, you know, kind of responses to that. And, uh, and that's not, you know, that's, uh, I think the more, the, the more Bob is willing to subvert and move away from that, uh, that attitude or that approach to things, the more successful he generally is. And, you know, this is, um, this is, this is the first time he's really indulged that in his career up until this point, at least. And so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a one star. The like, like getting brunch version of Bob Dylan, you know, it's not <laughs> like it, this is the meal that the chefs at the restaurant are putting the least amount of effort to. This is warmed over hollandaise. 
yes, it's like perfectly satisfying. Everyone loves Eggs Benedict, but you you maybe came a little too late in the afternoon. The Hollandaise has like that that film on it, right? If you'd gotten there earlier, you know, you you get in early, you get some some something pretty nice. You get the Man and Me, um, if not for you, stuff like that. But then you know later on, you, you're getting Salmonella potentially. <laughs> I mean, Father of Night is fine, but you know, it's a curiosity. Pat Garrett. Pat Garrett. I gave this a two. You gave it a one. I'd still give it a two because it's hard to compare it to anything else. And I think uh, he did a pretty good job at doing a soundtrack. I don't really feel like I have much else to say about it, though. Yeah, I still give it a one. You know, Heaven's Door is Heaven's Door. Everything else is not terribly memorable. I can't say that I listen to no. the Turkey Chase too often. No, but I, I do really appreciate the sort of like airy pastoral quality it has. And I think that for uh, Bob Dylan's first go at doing a soundtrack, uh, a score really, and in a lot of ways, I think it it's it's pretty good. It's and so nice job. Definitely a more successful effort than his next uh, motion picture slash soundtrack uh, experiment. Yeah. Uh, if, uh, if you all want to refresh your memory from our episode with Betsy. Um, yeah, it's cool that he tried it, you know, it, it, as a Bob record though, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's not, I don't not think of it me. quite as a Bob record. I think of it as Bob Dylan doing a pretty good job, like being commissioned to do something. So, whereas Fair enough. If, I, if we had like thought that's, that's my issue just to go back a little bit again. To, not that we need to put too fine a point on it, but New Morning is like a commissioned work that does not own up to being that. And that's my, that's at least this one's honest, you know, and it happens to yeah. have a, a immortal song tacked on. So there you go. That is true. Um, next, we've got uh, the Turgid Dylan 73. Zero stars. The first record to receive a unanimous zero. But it's also because us. it was really like not even something put together by Bob Dylan. It was a absolute uh, pirate ripoff jag by the jilted studio suits at Columbia after Dylan briefly parted ways with them. So yes. I don't think we need to talk anything, say anything more about it. Yes. It's perfectly fine to like have on in a literal elevator. Uh, Planet Waves. The very dependable. This is the always there for you. Planet Waves. This is a two star album, and I I don't have anything more to say about it. It's it's like the most two star thing you could possibly have. It is a uh, a solid B to B plus, and that's fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm- yeah, I'm 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 always tempted to make some sort of contrarian take about Planet Waves that it's either like complete shit or that it's secretly the best album of the 70s. It's not the best album of the 70s and it's not complete shit. Right, but that's the thing. You, you, both of those arguments fall flat on their face. Yeah. A couple fantastic tracks as we saw from our playlist exercise Night Like This Forever Young. Um, you know, a couple couple forgettable tracks and then a couple songs that are, you know, pretty pretty good. Um, 
Two stars. The twoest of stars. The, the twoest of two stars. Which brings us to the other 1974 release and the first of a lengthy run of live albums that Bob would embark on here before the flood. This is one that you gave one star, Ian. Yeah. And I gave two. And I still think I give it two. Um, even though there's things I really don't like about it, I actually do think, you know, th- there's issues I have with the band, which we actually haven't even touched on um, uh, the Basement Tapes, which we, we actually should have earlier on because it is technically a 60s record. Um, while I have issues with the band, I think they perform extremely well on here. My issues with it, the reason it's not a three-star for me, is actually a Bob thing, where I think that the the aggression with which all this is performed, while it's absolutely like riveting and um, electrifying at the best moments of this album, the fact that it is so relentless and just goes through the entire thing, just him hammering every song, it uh, it's not like you can do that and have have it not suffer as like a live album with a a really satisfying arc to it. There's just yeah. no dynamics, really. Uh, it's all at eleven, and um, yeah. You can't do that and expect it to be like as satisfying as a record can be. So yeah, when it works, it's like on fire, and when it's not working, it's on fire in a way that is bad, and you want to pr- it, put yeah. it out it is, <laughs> in the wrong way. Yeah, toxic fumes are coming off of it. It's just like you were freebasing and accidentally set your <laughs> your shag carpet ablaze. Yeah, you uh, instead of you know. Uh, liquefying your heroin on like a silver spoon you decided to do it on a on a plastic spork unlike a flammable uh top sheet to your waterbed yeah (laughs) um yeah i I think i probably was a little too hard harsh on this one with the one star uh i I, i'm willing to bump this up to a two because i do think that like you said when it works it really (laughs) does work literally (laughs) um it, we both had a couple um, before the flood tracks, or at least one before. Most likely, you um, uh, you go your way, and I go mine. You know, the album opener, another side one track one. Did we talk about? Um, that? We didn't talk about it because it didn't make the playlist, but it was on. It was at the very bottom of mine, and I it think was on you mine too. Had had thought about putting it on there. So honorable. Well, mention. what's done is um, honorable mention exactly. Yeah, that um, that cut is straight fire. Yeah, and, and you know, you just like the the. They come out on stage and the energy is just like off the charts, insane, right from the very start. The the, the version of Rainy Day Women that's on this, a uh, couple songs afterwards, also just absolutely ferocious and kicks ass. But yeah, like uh, like you said, just uh, the, 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 one, the one note, you know, keyed up version of all these songs works for a lot of them, but not for all of them. And I will also say... Uh, just too much band, you know. Uh, there, there are some good band songs. There are some good band songs on this uh, on this performance. I mean, the version but, of Stage Fright on here is sick. Yeah, the version of Stage Fright is great. You know, the weight is nice. Um, and Cripple I Creek. shall be released is one of my favorites. Did I say Cripple Creek? Not Cripple Creek. Um, 
That's Neil Young. No, no, they do Cripple Creek. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Up on Cripple Creek. Yeah, up on Cripple Creek, and then Cripple Creek Ferry is Neil Young. Okay, uh, right. And they, they um, do... Um, do they do... Wait, do, am I crazy? Do they not do... Um, no, they do I Shall Be Released, which is, I think, really one of the best versions of I Shall Be Released that exists with that sort of raspy falsetto. Um, I love that one. No good. And uh, the night they drove old Dixie down, just the right. shameless Canadian Southerner cosplaying. But uh, you know, say great song. Say what you want about the him. Subject matter. It's one of the band's. You know, few. Go- the band. Here's how I think about the band. You know, they're they're a great backing band. They're a good cover band, and they have a few very high quality songs as a band in their own right. Right. A few. Uh, and that's one. Yeah. Of I, I think that if, uh, if they hadn't been at the right place in the right time and just, you know, orbiting around Bob, uh, while he was conquering worlds, they would be, but a footnote in history. The, the band was not even the best version of the band. That would have been the Hawks, uh, who right. were murdering, Stages across Europe uh, and England with Bob in 1965. Did, did you watch um, the last waltz on Thanksgiving, like every other rock uh, pervert? I did not. Classic rock pervert. Um, did you? I watched some of it, yeah, and I I was reminded while watching it of the the part where um, Robbie Roberts is talking about like I forget who one of his his buddies who was sort of like a a mentor to him who was like something about like, do you want to get like an obscene amount of pussy and uh, by joining a music group? And he said, yes. And it all worked out. Um, well, he's dead. now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, is Robbie Robinson alive? Uh, I, th- I don't think so. Um, nope. Yep. Yep. 77 years old. Ah, what a bummer. Whatever. Just kidding. (laughs) Long may he live. But um, everyone else around him died from having too much pussy. And (laughs) drugs. Yes. Anyway, um, what's next? Two stars for Before the Flood from me. Bumping that up. two for me? Which brings us to the great debate. Oh, Christ. Yeah. (laughs) 1975. Blood on the Tracks. Three stars. From me, it was then, it is now. As loyal Jokerman listeners are aware, the other Jokerman awarded it a two-star rating. And in the run-up until this portion of the segment has been wavering back and forth about whether to stand by that rating or whether to give in to the demands of the community and award it a rightful three-star rating. So without any further ado, Evan, I cede the floor to you. Is Blood on the Tracks a two-star or a three-star album? (laughs) You look like you're gathering (sighs) psychic strength. I am. Why, what, we can, we can talk this through a little bit. Why, why is it such a, what, what is, 
why is this a challenge for you? What are you, what, what is, what is pulling you in both directions here? Frankly, I, it's easy for me to get sick of this album because it's very intense. It's like, Mm. it's like truffles, like eating truffles, like eat too many truffle fries. You're just going to feel sick. (laughs) Eat too much dark chocolate. You're going to get a little sick of it. It's very intense. It can be a little gross if you overdo it. And I think that that's what happened to me. That said, I think after a long period of feeling that way and um, being a little bit put off of certain aspects of the record, I, I do feel like overall it is a three-star record. However, <laughs> it's it's also a complicated case because this is a rare record that has basically two, at least two, canonical, uh, sort of wildly, con- consistently debated versions and iterations. Um, so, I'll just shut the fuck up. Three stars, whatever. Stop bothering me. You heard it here, folks. Blood on the tracks. The official Jokerman double three star rating. As it should be. Before Evan changes his mind, we'll move along to the basement tapes. <laughs> Received the official Jokerman double one star rating. Right. Initially. The the second since New Morning. The second since New Morning. For my part, I'm standing by it. Yeah, me too. The band is boring. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like everything except the band tracks is fun and good, pretty much. You know, I like it. It's kind of why I love self portrait so much in a lot of ways is like, it's like the f- sort of spontaneous and um, off the cuff, like, sounds like he's having a good time, Bob, that you get on this. However, the reality is that the basement tapes is deeply flawed because Robbie Robertson put on his mediocre bullshit through the back door, and uh, you can never scrub that off of the legacy of the basement tapes. Yeah, it's an absolute stain, a, a dark, a dark spot on the cover of the record. It's like they have a captive audience with Bob Dylan who basically like gave the shine they have to them by like out of his own just generosity basically. And, uh, they couldn't help, but like at least Robbie Robertson, it seems couldn't help, but just milk that till it was dry. And when I say dry, I mean, you know, bone dry, just having some boring bullshit tacked onto this thing. So Million Dollar Bash is, I think, one that we both love. I think we both yep. have said that the best moments on this are sort of the goofy Dylan uh, moments where he's really clear, where he sounds like he's having fun. And the worst things about it is this like creeping feeling that you get that uh, it's like the band being the friend who who's hosted the sleepover 
and is now being like, let's hang out tomorrow too. And the next day. Exactly. <laughs> that is literally exactly what it is. Uh, I, that's the <laughs> perfect metaphor for it. Uh, I will just add, there's a reason that so many of the band's best songs, the songwriting credits actually belong to Bob. Right. And yet none of Bob's best songs have any songwriting credits that belong to Robbie Robertson or Levon Helm or anyone else involved with the band. Uh, they are, they are hangers on and they are, uh, they, they are drafters, uh, just coasting in the cool path laid down for them by Bob's race car. And, uh, the less of them, the better, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to Bob records, at least. Uh, and, uh, there's just far too much of that here on, uh, on the basement tapes when they just kind of hang out in the background and vibe. Uh, and let Bob, you know, do his thing, as we see with Planet Waves, where the band, you know, is is literally the band in that in that case. You know, you get a great record. And yet, um, Planet Waves, I think, suffers slightly because it is almost like the inverse, where Bob Dylan is trying to sound like the band, <laughs> and it makes him be a little there's boring. An element of that, like it, it makes Bob a little less interesting. It's like the band is just like, you know, when they stay in their lane. They do their thing, supporting another artist. You know, whatever. Fuck it. I mean, the best parts of The Last Waltz are everyone but the band. Everyone knows that. So what more is there to say? Yeah. Um, all right. Basement Tapes was a one for both of us, still one for both of us. Desire. Initially, a three star for me and a two star for you. Firmly two stars for me still. I just don't love it. Interesting. It's just like I'm, I'm, gypsy runoff. It's just like leftover vibes from Rolling Thunder, as far as I'm concerned. And that's not going to be bad, but it's not great. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm torn about what to do here. Because I do, I do really love desire and i think that the songs each one is so uh, there's so there's such a varied kind of template and texture to all the songs on this record black diamond bay is so different from oh sister is so different mm-hmm. from sarah is so different from hurricane is so different from mozambique like they're so such a different yeah you know what it's still three star right. there's no other bob record right. like it as far as i'm concerned it's, and it's the, kind the, of true. the co-writing was jacques levy and like the, the what what comes out of it, you know, Joey is is definitely sort of a uh, a, a bit of a drag, but everything else really stands up. I think I was just listening to it again the other night, and uh, you know, it, it's it's great track after great track. You know, to me, I, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I I just think so much of music. I've been thinking a lot about like the subjective nature of rating music and and listening to music, and and how everybody has a different feeling about. A certain album or whatever and i really just think that everybody makes these certain connections with music or they don't like some things just match up with experiences with memories with sense impressions that you have and when that happens you can't help but feel like this is important this is proper music that really has weight and meaning and uh sometimes that just doesn't happen for me, that never quite 
happened with Desire. And um, I totally get how it could happen for other people. But just for whatever reason, the texture and the shape of my life does not lead me to particularly uh, romanticize the um, eclectic, almost like world music vision that Bob gives us on the album Desire. Although it has some great violin. Yes. <laughs> uh, Hard Rain, second live album of the 1970s. Right. Uh, and a, uh, a double one from both of us initially remains a one from me. One for me, too. It's just, again, as generous as I feel like I might have been to give Desire a record I like, st- I don't love two stars just because th- I realize there's a lot of good things about it. Hard Rain is, I think it's got some good stuff about it. If you're into Desire, like hardcore, I un- you'll love Hard Rain. I am not that man. For what it's worth, I am into Desire Hardcore, and I do not love Hard Rain. You're not that man. <laughs> uh, Street Legal. Uh, I gave it a two. So did I. Um, Street Legal is still a two, because ultimately it's like such a weird moment in time <laughs> that uh, I can't like... I don't know. There, I feel like no other record really does 1978 like Street Legal. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I almost, I, I I've been. This is the one that I've been struggling with the most in terms of changing my score one way or the other uh, from the two. If anything, this goes to a three for me. Wow. Street Legal has only grown in my estimation since we initially recorded on it and i remember actually i think i i even gave it a one in the initial recording or wanted to and then like somehow we didn't end up recording that and so i had to record it separately and then i sent it to you and you did that like weird old like radio play kind of thing (laughs) version of it yeah um and and we both gave it a two at that point um i I don't think i can actually get to three on this because new pony still sucks is your love in vain still n- not great? Senor still boring. I actually like um, I like Senor. <laughs> you like Senor? You no, know, actually, Senor is one of my senor. favorites on the record. Senor, Senor, Senor. I actually uh, no, that's one of the reasons I give it a t- still give it a two. Respect, you know. Yeah, Senor. I I think the like the 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 lengthy kind of like cinematic kind of tracks on here changing of the guards which obviously we talked about earlier on the playlist uh where are you tonight album closer you know your your album opener and your album closer are both fantastic and even no time to think which is by some uh uh estimation no it's good uh one one of the dumbest songs that he's ever written uh, also, also just a very fun smartest. song yeah exactly um it uh those longer songs are just a lot of fun and then and then the other element you know just kind of the the cloying um uh simple kind of love songs uh baby stop I crying like stop crying stop crying is fantastic it's fantastic i love that song okay so yeah um, no i'm i'm very happy to still give it 
a, a, a two. What was yeah, I true love tends to forget, and we better talk this over. The other kind of love songs on second side also fantastic, but that combination of new pony is your love in vain, and for me, senor, just the presence. You know, it's it's only a nine song record, so fully a third of it is stuff that I'm not vibing with super hard. So I think it I think it has to say it too. But it's it's one just one just a, a, a slight light breeze on a on a cloudy day would push it push it over the ledge into three star territory for me. Yes. But still too. Um Budokan? Double threes? Yeah, sure. You know. It, it it's great. It's uh the best expression of whatever it is. <laughs> we can't spend no too question. much more time on this. We we've been going for so long. But I mean, yeah. uh, no we've said a Budokan. lot. If if we're ever gonna say what is there to say, just you know, listen to our Budokan episode. I think we cover it pretty thoroughly. The best live album that Bob has ever recorded. Yeah, three stars. Next, <laughs> uh, and that brings us to the end of the seventies, nineteen seventy nine. Slow train coming. Okay, this is another tough one for me. Pulling into the station. I'm actually going to have to... Slain train coming. Do something here. Um, wow. Maybe. Well, if you, if you, remember, if you remember, this was uh, the episode that we recorded with uh, the great Sam France. Yeah. And at the end of the episode, I think we, we all kind of excited one another into this frenzy. Frenzy, uh, yeah. it, at, at which yeah. point we all just kind of spontaneously decided three, three, three. We, uh, if your friend jumps off the bridge for Jesus, do you do it too? The answer <laughs> is yes. Um, but I think I was wrong. I think it's a two-star record for me. Why is that? Just because I don't listen to it that much. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think I'm gonna have to 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 dock down to a two as well. I think there are a couple of really standout tracks. Gotta serve somebody. Um, Gotta again, serve somebody. Almost made it onto my list, onto my playlist. Yeah, almost made it onto mine as well. And um, uh, another fantastic album opener. Um, when he returns. When he returns. Closer very again. Great. Knockout stunner. Precious Angel, as Precious we talked Angels, about. Great. Really great. Slow train title track. Interesting. Not less than uh, it's less than great to me, though. Yeah, and uh, uh, man gave name to all the animals. Love it. Love that. It is what it is, though. Um, I do. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, don't I, know. I, I, I think that we both just recognize that we maybe got a little lost in the sauce. I, it's a the good, moment might have gotten the best of us. It's a good record, and I like it. But I, yeah. Yeah, if this I think if so. this is our chance to take the off ramp and sort of balance the scales, it's a two. Yeah, I, and and yeah, two for me too. And and I think that makes sense if if I'm thinking about other records, you know, the ratings that I've assigned to other records. So two stars, slow train, two stars, planet waves, two stars, street legal. I think that all, you know, that that all makes sense to me. I I all. I, I like all of those albums, you know, roughly equivalently. And so uh, sorting them all into the same star bucket, uh, I think, is, is what needs to be done. The star bucket. 
the two star bucket. So there you have it, folks. Uh, that is the 1970s. That is the Jokerman reappraisal of the 1970s. I, uh, well, I was going to say I thank you for uh, sticking with us for nearly three hours of this. Um, although I really hope that you haven't, because uh, God, I can't imagine listening to oh us go on God. and on about this for Two three hours, hours. forty-two minutes. <laughs> we'll probably cut it. I mean, I might cut some of it out, but it's yeah, I'll get down to two thirty, yeah. something like that. Uh, but definitely the longest single episode of Jokerman that has been released uh, up until now. Well, that's fine because we're only releasing this one for this week. Right. So. This is just going to be a single, a one, a one chunk uh, week. Next week, it's going to be a similar experience. <laughs> where- similar. Back to the well, uh, we're going to repeat this whole exercise for, I think, what might be a more fun version of this. Well, different. Uh, very different. A di- the, very different. For the 1980s, of, of course. Yes. Uh, which will begin with another uh, 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 infamous rating uh, for a record. Um, well, What's that? I, I won't. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, it, I think it's going to be kind of a rehash of what we've the exercise we literally just went through, <laughs> perhaps, could be similar to that. Perhaps. I guess we'll see. Um, I don't know. What more is there Any to last say? words about the 70s, Evan? Well, uh, I think that, uh, <laughs> I guess it was Up To Me, is that Up To Me, that version, that song from, uh, that didn't Blood make on the tracks. Blood On The Tracks. That's pretty good. I, I'd, I'd want to mention uh, Matt Farley, the great uh, filmmaker songwriter one of the greatest songwriters in terms of number of songs ever he's written so many songs and you wouldn't believe Twenty thousand songs this man's written a lot of songs and uh, a friend of the pod he uh he wrote an album which is a wonderful record the album i love bob dylan by the passionate and objective joker fan with song titles like expectingrain.com about the the Bob Dylan fan site and one the second track on on this album a very important one that i think is apt to reference right now a better version of blood on the tracks and mm. um, this is actually an interaction we just i just had recently with with Mr. Farley um i was sort of ruminating i was talking about my my two star initial review of blood on the tracks and he responded, this version would always get a three stars, no matter what. And um, in this song, Matt Farley paints a, a picture lyric with lyrics of what the ideal version of Blood on the Tracks is, combining ver- aspects and cuts from every possible uh, version of the record. And Up To Me is on there. I, that's what reminded me of this. and. Um, he gets rid of Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts and also gets, he says, you can lose uh, Meet Me in the Morning. Yeah, I would, I would, I would co-sign uh, Meet Me in the Morning. I think that's sort of, uh, you know, definitely. A- I, I, I'm, while I love Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, I do recognize that it is kind of annoying. I love it, but it is an annoying song in, in some way that maybe does, Maybe there's a universe where it doesn't appear on that record and it, it, it works out. Uh, I personally like it, but um, I don't know what you think. But anyway, suffice it to say that uh, 
he adds up to me on there instead at, at some yes. point. Yeah. Up to me is good. It's cool. And really I just want to reference in respect to the, uh, like cyclopean geometry of the blood on the tracks fandom and, uh, executive decision world that you have to make when you approach this record. Matt Farley is uh, someone to, to listen to when it, when it comes to that with his song, a better version of blood on the tracks. <laughs> There's also a great song on the record called um, Bob Dylan's still alive <laughs> about how it was- can't believe he's still alive. It was true then, and it's true now. I, I, I hope by the time this album, this, uh, I hope by the time this episode comes out, it's still true. I'm sure it will be. What else do you have to say? I think that's. I, I, I think that I have, I've said enough over the last two hours and forty eight minutes and eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve seconds. It'll be less than that. I'll cut a little bit out. We'll get, yeah, we'll get down to a tight 2.30. All right. Well, thank you for listening to this, if anybody did. And go listen to uh, Jokerman Best of the 70s playlist. We, we talked about all the songs uh, today here on the episode, but we're going to do a little bit of sequencing work. and Make it into and, a seamless uh, and a beautiful listening experience, actually. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, Peaks so, and valleys so go- and everything you want out of a... A record, but as a sort of beautiful, immaculate DJ set by Ian and Evan. Exactly. Theme time, uh, Ian and Evan's uh, theme time radio hour. Mm-hmm. Join us next time when we do it all over again for an even better decade the 1980s. One, two, three, four. Joker, Joker Man. man. <laughs>